0: Sin City Stories contains explicit content that may be disturbing to some listeners, including strong language, graphic details, and depictions of violent crimes. Listener discretion is advised. In the spring of 1996, a trio of bodies were discovered in the desert just outside of Las Vegas. Initially believed to be victims of sex trafficking, the case remained unsolved for over a decade, demonstrating a troubling proposition. Three people can disappear and be murdered in a major American city with little more than a passing mention in the local press and zero potential suspects. Since its founding on May 15th, 1905, Las Vegas has gone from being a small railway stop in the middle of the Mojave Desert to a glittering neon oasis of gambling, shopping, fine dining, and entertainment, welcoming tens of millions of visitors from around the world Every year. Through its relatively short history, the city has been witness to over a century's worth of murder, robberies, arson, and mayhem. And that's what we're here to share with you. In collaboration with MayhemIndTheDesert.com, this is Sin City Stories, Vegas True Crime, the sordid tales behind the stranger than fiction history of fabulous Las Vegas, Nevada. It's March 25, 1996. A Las Vegas resident spends the afternoon off-roading in the desert areas on the southeast edge of the city, around the intersection of Hollywood Boulevard and Vegas Valley. As the daylight dwindles, the off-roader stops near Las Vegas Wash, a narrow channel running along the east side of the valley and terminating at the Las Vegas wetlands. He stops his ATV not far from the giant waste treatment facility across from the wetlands and walks through the dirt, past the empty beer bottles and various dumped debris that dot the desert scenery around the city. After finding an appropriate spot for some plinking, he pulls out an air pistol. But after popping off only a few shots, he's overwhelmed by a powerful stench wafting from nearby. A journey of just a few feet to the top of a sloping, brush-covered dune leads the off-roader to an unimaginable sight. Looking down into a dry ravine, he recognizes, amid a partially dug-up mound, the clear form of a human torso and a dusty piece of green plastic protruding from the dirt. Instinctually, he recoils and runs to his parked ATV, hurrying back to town to contact the police. Police arrived at the crime scene in the desert near the Wastewater Treatment Plant late in the afternoon. Despite being only minutes from the edge of rows of residential neighborhoods, the burial site was notable for its isolation. Homicide detectives made their way into the dry ravine to inspect the torso protruding from the mound. As the dirt was carefully cleared away, the torso was revealed to be the slender, nude body of a woman with shoulder-length black hair. The green plastic noticed by the off-roader turned out to be shredded remnants of a 30-gallon garbage bag that the victim had been placed into prior to her burial. Detectives theorized that wild animals had unearthed the shallow grave and tore through part of the plastic bag. After the woman's body was removed from the makeshift grave, Detective Dave Hatch noticed what he thought was clothing buried beneath the woman's body. He didn't have to dig for long before making another horrific discovery. Underneath, and slightly to either side of the first woman's body, were two more green garbage bags, both bound with packing tape. Concealed inside each bag were the bodies of two more women. One woman was found nude, just as the first victim was, while the other woman was clad only in underwear. Investigators also discovered various articles of clothing stuffed into the oversized garbage bags, including some in children's sizes. The disposal site was classified as a beehive grave, covered with about a foot of dirt that at first glance appeared to be just another one of the countless rolling mounds dotting the desert landscape. As night fell, a van from the Clark County coroner's office arrived in the lonely desert, the wake of dust behind it illuminated by the headlights from the gathered police cars. The bodies of the three unidentified women were loaded into the van for transport to the county morgue. Homicide detectives then fanned out into the frigid desert night to search the surrounding area for any evidence that might provide some idea as to how the three women ended up in the shallow desert grave. Not far from the burial site, investigators located two suitcases containing bloody clothing. No other clues were found around the cryptic crime scene. Detectives' only hope was that the victim's autopsies would reveal some information that could lead to the identity of those responsible for the gruesome scene in the desert east of Las Vegas. The bodies of the three Jane Doe's were brought from their resting site near the Las Vegas Wash to a plain one-story building on Shadow Lane in the city's medical district. That building served as the Clark County Coroner's Office, where the autopsies on the unidentified women were performed over the course of two days. Based on the rate of decomposition and the location where the bodies were recovered, the coroner determined the women had been in their burial spot for upwards of five months. The coroner also believed that all three of the women were Asian. The oldest victim was between the ages of 35 and 50, and she wore upper dentures. The autopsies further revealed that the other two victims were between the ages of 25 and 35. Each of the nameless women had builds described as very slender, and they had long, dark hair. one of the younger victims had several strands of gray hair for two of the jane does the cause of death was determined to be strangulation the third woman died of suffocation coupled with a blunt force injury to her head and though the three women were all found either nude or partially clothed none of the bodies showed signs of sexual assault the police ran the fingerprints of the three victims through national databases but no records were found No fingerprint matches meant no arrests, no passports, and no driver's licenses for any of the three unidentified women. Besides the three bodies in the desert, there was nothing investigators could find to prove that Jane Doe's had ever existed at all. With little to go on, detectives with Vegas Metro reached out to the Los Angeles Police Department for assistance. Investigators managed to generate some leads by working in concert with the LAPD Missing Persons Unit and the LAPD Asian Gangs Unit. The profile of the victims, lack of identifying records, and absence of missing persons reports led investigators to examine links between organized crime and local massage parlors suspected of engaging in prostitution. Several organized crime syndicates with links to China were prevalent in the Los Angeles area at the time of the murders. Two such groups affiliated with Chinese triads, the 14K and the 4Cs, were known to lure women from China and Thailand to the United States. Upon arrival, they were then forced into prostitution at massage parlors in cities across the country. At the time, federal officials estimated that triad-linked gangs in the U.S. brought in $3 billion a year through human trafficking and prostitution. The ruses used by these gangs to entice their victims were varied. Sometimes, ads in foreign newspapers would attract women with the prospect of lucrative employment opportunities in the United States, while others would claim to facilitate marriages to American men. The transnational operation then secured temporary visas for the women and coordinated their travel from China and Thailand, though some trafficking victims were smuggled into the country outside of normal ports of entry. But once in the United States, the women had their passports and other identifying documents confiscated. These would be held by the gang until the women had paid off the debt they owed for their travel to the United States. That amount owing sometimes totaled more than $60,000. From there, the women were funneled through a vast network of massage parlors operated by the gangs throughout the U.S. in cities ranging from Seattle to Denver to Las Vegas. The women didn't stay for long at any one massage parlor. Sometimes 60 to 80 different women would be rotated through just one establishment in a given year. This frequent rotation served multiple purposes. It prevented women from forming lasting bonds with their fellow captives, left victims disoriented, and provided the parlors clientele with a steady supply of new faces. Victims trafficked by triad link gangs and other organized crime operations were usually forced to live on site in the cramped back rooms of massage parlors. At one California parlor raided by the police, six women shared a room where they slept on the floor using shreds of foil as blankets. These massage establishments served as the sites of modern-day slavery that operated openly within communities across the country. Parlor operators retained the money paid by clients for sessions, with any tip paid for sexual services going towards paying off the trafficking victim's debt. Also taken from these tips by the operators were costs related to room and board for the victim's squalid conditions. Another mechanism of control over trafficking victims was the common practice of massage parlor owners holding any money earned by the women in their establishment in a bank account under the parlor operator's name. The operators would then claim this was for the women's benefit. Threats and intimidation were also ever-present in the lives of trafficking victims. Non-compliance with a massage parlor operator's demands would be met with beatings, the withholding of food, and sleep deprivation. Traffickers also often had direct contact with gang members in Thailand or China and would threaten to harm their victim's relatives if they failed to comply. Victims' unlawful immigration status was often used as leverage, with disruptive women finding themselves turned over to immigration authorities for deportation. And in an underground industry marked by cold cruelty, women who somehow managed to pay off their debt found themselves locked out of the massage parlors that had been their only home in the United States without a penny to their name. A year and a half before the three unidentified bodies were found in the Vegas desert, a political fight took place over cross-gender massage ordinances in Clark County. The ban had been put in place in the early 1980s to crack down on massage parlors serving as fronts for prostitution and, along with them, the organized crime networks that often backed such enterprises. But a coalition of massage therapists argued the restrictions were a burdensome barrier to doing business and that greater regulation of the massage industry had already reduced past problems with illicit prostitution. In 1994, the ban on cross-gender massages was eliminated in a narrow vote before the Clark County Commission. New regulations passed around that same time increased the fees the Las Vegas Metropolitan Police Department could charge to perform background checks on prospective masseuses. These checks, which had been in place since 1992, were done to ensure applicants had no prior arrests for prostitution. The 1994 fight over regulation of massage establishments was a continuation of an ongoing decades-long battle between the massage industry and elected officials dating back to the 1970s. In 1973, the Las Vegas City Council passed an ordinance limiting the number of massage establishments in the city to one for every 75,000 residents. At the time, Las Vegas had a population of around 200,000 people, meaning the number of massage businesses was capped at three within the city limits. The owners of several proposed parlors who were denied licenses under the ordinance filed a lawsuit and in January of 1975, District Court Judge Paul Goldman ruled in favor of the massage parlor owners, saying the city ordinance placed an unconstitutional restriction on their rights to earn an honest living. The 1970s and 80s saw continued police raids on massage establishments serving as fronts for prostitution. But most of these busts involved wildcat operations run out of private homes. For example, a 1987 raid by the Metro Vice Squad targeted several apartments after following up on ads in the personal section of the local newspapers, offering relaxing central body massages. The loosening of restrictions on cross-gender massages in the early 1990s was met with another backlash a few years later against the perceived susceptibility of the massage industry to prostitution in 2002 clark county and municipalities in the vegas valley implemented a moratorium on the opening of new massage establishments This decades-long tug-of-war between the massage industry and government regulators has continued into recent years, with Clark County implementing ordinances restricting the ability of massage establishments to remain open past 10 p.m. Massage industry representatives have argued that this regulation has limited their ability to provide massage services to employees getting off from a late shift or tourists weary from walking the Strip. Amid the ongoing fight over regulation of the massage industry, human trafficking and forced prostitution still remain a chronic problem across Nevada. Of an estimated 1,000 massage establishments operating across the state in 2019, roughly 250 were believed to be involved in illicit prostitution. And traffickers today have moved from luring victims with newspaper ads to social media posts targeting women across China. The question still remained, who was behind the brutal murders of the three women left in the Vegas desert? The best theory from detectives working the triple murder case was that the three women were foreign nationals trafficked to the United States via Los Angeles. The lack of any records related to the victim's fingerprints meant they were most likely smuggled into the country outside of a regular port of entry for foreign travelers. Investigators believe that once they were brought into the U.S., the women's captors transported them to the Las Vegas area and attempted to force them to work as prostitutes in a local massage parlor, likely under the control of an organized crime syndicate. However, it was pure speculation as to the events that led to the women's murders. Perhaps the trio had attempted to escape the cruel life into which they'd been forced. Maybe the damage to the elder woman's skull was the result of her captor using a nearby object to halt her escape. Then came the methodical strangulation of the other two, possibly to eliminate witnesses to the murder or maybe as punishment for participating in an attempted escape. The killer, or possibly killers based on the amount of effort needed to dispose of the bodies, then engaged in a hasty burial of the three women under only a foot of dirt, with evidence of the crime left strewn nearby. For his part, lead detective on the case, Sergeant Bill Keaton commented, It's very difficult especially when the victims have no family that we know of and no one came forward to claim them. It's purely speculation, but they were probably smuggled into the country, then balked at becoming prostitutes, and they were killed. So many loose ends remained. What to make of the children's clothes found in the buried garbage bags alongside the victims, or the bloody clothes found in the nearby suitcase. And while it appeared most probable that an organized crime group was responsible for the deaths a different murderer couldn't be ruled out the bodies of several women were found in the desert on the east side of las vegas around the same time leaving detectives on the case to speculate whether or not a serial killer could be on the loose detectives working the triple homicide case followed available leads but las vegas metro didn't expend significant resources on efforts to identify those responsible for the slayings Sergeant Keaton said that of the hundreds of homicides he'd investigated, this unsolved triple murder was one of his most gruesome cases. Human beings in green garbage bags, thrown on top of each other. It seemed like they were being thrown away like garbage. It was a disgusting scene. And it appeared that would be the end of the story. Years passed, and it seemed the three women found in their unceremonious final resting place in the desert surrounding Las Vegas would remain forever unknown. But in 1999, a police officer nearing retirement in the town of Downey, California, located just southeast of Los Angeles, decided to review the department's cold case files to see if something might have been overlooked by his predecessors. Sergeant Jim Alsasser sat at his desk and sifted through page after page of unsolved missing persons reports when one case presented such a bizarre set of circumstances it made the veteran officer stop in his tracks. It was the case of a mother and her two teenage daughters who went missing in the fall of 1994. Luz Maria Messino and her daughters Edith Massino Gonzalez and Gabriela Massino Gonzalez had been last seen at the apartment that they shared with Luz's common-law husband, Estanislo Prado Gonzalez, and the twin four-year-olds that he'd conceived with Luz. The family had moved into their new residence on Old River School Road in late November of 1994. The neighborhood was quiet and featured several sprawling blocks of two-story modest apartment buildings located across the street from stereotypical Southern California single-story ranch-style homes. However, within days of signing a year-long lease, Estanislo Gonzalez and the four-year-old twins abandoned the apartment for whereabouts unknown. A friend of Lou's became suspicious after not hearing from her for some time. The friend filed a missing persons report after spotting a toy kitchen set that belonged to the couple's twins still sitting on the apartment patio. Police investigators searched the vacant home. It was clear there'd been a hasty relocation from the premises, but initially there were no signs of foul play. That is, until crime scene investigators were able to use luminol to identify the remnants of blood spatter on the premises. The forensic team was also able to determine that someone had used bleach and other powerful cleaning agents in an effort to sanitize the scene. The empty apartment and missing family now took on a more ominous tone. But this was still the early days of DNA technology, and the Downey police were only able to determine that the blood in the apartment was human, No positive identifications could be made. The case file showed that detectives with the Downey PD ran down all the leads they could to locate the missing family. Estanislao Gonzalez and Luz Messino worked together at a warehouse operated by a costume supply company. The busy Halloween season had just ended a few weeks before the Gonzalez family's disappearance, when the manager of the warehouse received an unexpected call from Estanislao. Gonzalez told his boss that he and Luz had quit their jobs due to immigration issues. Not wanting to lose two good employees, Gonzalez's manager offered to assist in locating an immigration attorney and even said the company would foot the bill for the legal fees. The manager was shocked when Gonzalez rejected this generous offer and instead informed him that he would be stopping by to pick up the final paychecks for himself and Luz. At this point, police became suspicious and set up a sting to detain Gonzalez for questioning. Several Downey police officers waited in hiding for Gonzalez to arrive at the warehouse, but he never showed. Sergeant Elsasser, his curiosity now peaked, searched databases for California and neighboring states to locate any reports about Luz or her daughters, but he came up with nothing. The sergeant then ran the vehicle identification number for the van Estanislo Gonzalez owned when he lived in Downey. There was a hit. Gonzalez had registered the van at an address in Las Vegas, which was about a four hour drive from Downey. Sergeant El Sasser contacted the Las Vegas Metropolitan Police Department, who then confirmed that Gonzalez and his twin children were now living in a trailer park on the southeastern side of Las Vegas. But that was where the case went cold, again. Gonzalez had informed acquaintances of the couple in California that his wife and stepdaughters had left their home abruptly after Luz informed him of her intent to separate. Without more evidence, there was nothing that could be done but wait. As fortune would have it, the wait wouldn't be long. By 2002, advances in DNA technology had finally resulted in being able to make a match with the blood samples found in the abandoned apartment on Old River School Road. Analysts could now say that the blood spatter found in the apartment came from two women who were likely related. Now, detectives with the Downey Police Department needed a relative of Lou's or her daughters from which to obtain a DNA sample for comparison to the blood samples in police evidence. The obvious choice was Luz's twin children, who now resided with Gonzalez in Las Vegas. But the conundrum for police was how to obtain the comparison sample when the kids were in the custody of the man police suspected had murdered their mother and sisters. That led to Downey police contacting detectives assigned to the Southeast Area Command of Vegas Metro. They needed help developing a plan that would allow investigators to make the crucial connection needed to obtain an arrest warrant for Stanislaw Gonzalez. A sergeant with the Downey police made the journey from the California coast to the desert and then linked up with two Vegas detectives. The officers now needed to find a way to approach Gonzalez without raising his suspicions. The last thing anybody gathered at the Southeast Area Command wanted was for Gonzalez to hit the road once again and go into hiding with the children. Then, one of the gathered officers proposed a plan that would allow them inside Gonzalez's home under the guise of helping him financially. After his sudden departure from Downey, Gonzalez settled into new quarters with his young twin children in a trailer park along Boulder Highway. An early artery linking Boulder City to downtown Las Vegas, the no-man's-land section of Boulder between Henderson and downtown has long been a stretch of dusty desolation, where the unseemlier aspects of a 24-hour town aren't concealed behind the doors of hotel suites, but instead laid bare on either side of the expansive six-lane road. This particular part of Boulder Highway is where fancy bars with complex themes and designer cocktails are replaced by establishments that give real meaning to the term dive bar. Bottom tier casinos where tourists dare not venture even with the allure of a 99 cent breakfast punctuate the eclectic landscape of dreariness along this lost portion of Sin City. And mobile home parks with narrow and haphazard streets stand in contrast to the well-manicured lawns and the orderliness of newer Las Vegas neighborhoods. It was in the first part of 2003 that Detective Gil Toledo, along with two detectives from Las Vegas Metro, knocked on the door of the trailer where Gonzalez now lived. The officers were out of uniform and introduced themselves to Gonzalez as social workers who were there to see what additional financial assistance could be provided to help with the care of his two children. The officers complimented Gonzalez for taking on the responsibility of being a single father, with one detective later saying that they made him feel like father of the year. Gonzalez was receptive to the prospect of receiving some financial aid, particularly given the state of the mobile home he shared with the young twins. Gonzalez invited the social workers into his home, where the stench of rotting food and animal droppings instantly assaulted the detective's nostrils. Exposed electrical wires and various other hazards were present inside the tiny quarters occupied by the family of three. Gonzales didn't become suspicious with the detective's questions that appeared to him to be the sort typical of social workers. When he was asked about the whereabouts of the twins' mother, Gonzalez responded that the children's mother had abandoned the family years before. And when the social workers asked the kids about their mother, they responded, We don't have one. Playing the long game can be hard. The detectives who visited the rundown mobile home where the Gonzalez twins now resided wanted to remove the children from the horrid situation right then and there. But without enough evidence to make an arrest, all that removing the children would accomplish would be to permit their father to once again evade the persistent questions about his role in the disappearances of Luz, Edith, and Gabriella. So the officers left the trailer park on Boulder Highway that day without the Gonzalez children but they were now armed with more information they could use in their hunt for evidence that would tie Estanislo Gonzalez to the disappearance of Luz Messino and her daughters. A few days after the two detectives who had pretended to be social workers visited Gonzalez's home, they stopped by the Boys and Girls Club where the Gonzalez twins regularly spent time. The detectives continued with their ruse that they were social workers and requested that the children brush their teeth as part of a health check. The detectives then took the toothbrushes used by the twins and compared their DNA to that of the blood found in the apartment back in Downey. It was a match. The blood that the killer had tried to bleach out of existence belonged to Luz Messino or one of her two missing daughters. In a new twist in the case, detectives had come to identify Gonzalez's sister, Delia Gonzalez Mora, as a potential source of additional evidence to support an arrest and conviction. Downey police detectives made contact with Mora at her home in Los Angeles, while Vegas police kept an eye on her brother to ensure he didn't flee the jurisdiction. A warrant was obtained to tap the phone of Gonzalez, where conversations were later picked up between the murder suspect and his sister. Shortly afterwards, police knocked on Mora's door and asked about her brother's connection to Luz's disappearance. Though Gonzalez's sister claimed to know nothing about Luz Messino, the wiretap revealed that she immediately drove to a payphone and tipped off her brother that the police were asking questions about his missing wife. Gonzalez's sister even offered to pick her brother up and drive him to Mexico, where he'd likely be beyond the reach of both the Downey and Vegas police departments. Detectives feared that Gonzalez might take his sister up on her offer, so they moved quickly to make an arrest based on the evidence they had as Gonzalez was apprehended in the parking lot of the Boys and Girls Club as he was picking up his twins. The children were taken into protective custody and eventually placed with a foster family while their father was booked at the Clark County Detention Center. In the police interrogation room, Gonzalez maintained his innocence, at least at first. Initially, he tried convincing detectives that two movers had stabbed Luz and her daughters to death, and that afterwards, Gonzalez had helped to dispose of the bodies near Los Angeles. Once it became clear that his original stories weren't adding up, Gonzalez agreed to confess to the triple murders of Luz, Edith, and Gabriella. In exchange for the confession, prosecutors agreed to not pursue the death penalty. Unfortunately, one term of Gonzalez's plea agreement was that he only had to confess to the murders. He did not have to offer an explanation of how he committed the murders or how he disposed of the bodies. This was a particularly troublesome aspect of the deal as investigators on the case had long believed that Gonzalez had help in disposing of the bodies. As one of the detectives in the case commented, how does one person kill three people and dispose of them like that? Someone had to help him. Police also arrested Gonzalez's sister in relation to the three murders, but the District Attorney for Los Angeles County ultimately determined there was insufficient evidence to obtain a conviction, as Stanislo Gonzalez received three life sentences for his crime. Among the questions that remained unanswered after Gonzalez's arrest and conviction was the chain of events and motives that resulted in three women being slain in a suburban California apartment. While there likely never will be a definitive account of the tragic actions that occurred in late 1994 at the Gonzales residence, a blog post written by the manager of the costume warehouse where Gonzalez and Luz both worked, sheds some light on these questions. The manager described a Stanislaw Gonzales, who went by Tanny, as a pleasant and intelligent fellow who had taught himself to speak fluent English and read often. The manager remembered Luz, who went by Lucy, as a hard worker. In fact, far harder of a worker than her husband. The manager remembered that Tanny Gonzalez would often idle away his time at work by daydreaming or listening to the radio, all while Luz pulled double duty to make sure the work in the warehouse was complete by day's end. Another interesting memory of the manager that potentially offers insight into Gonzalez's mindset is the recollection that Gonzalez was often passive and quiet, with one exception. Gonzalez would frequently use a sharp tone when speaking with Luz and maintained an aggressive posture towards his wife. The manager thought that Gonzalez exerted a sort of control over Luz. More troubling is that another employee at the warehouse suspected Gonzalez physically abused Luz as she would occasionally show up to work with black eyes. The broad motive behind the murder was tragic, but sadly not uncommon. Gonzalez and Luz's relationship appears to have been punctuated by routine domestic violence. Who knows what occurred on the night of the murders that caused the carnage Gonzalez wrought, but it could have been Luz telling her husband that she and her daughters would be leaving to start a new life. Gonzalez may have reacted to this news by killing Luz, as well as her daughters who possibly witnessed the murder. We also will likely never know how the murders occurred. But with blood spatter from Luz and one of her daughters present in the apartment, and the lack of neighbors reporting the sound of gunshots, it seems likely that Gonzalez used a sharp or blunt instrument to commit the slayings. Also, no neighbors in the apartment complex reported screams or the sounds of a struggle, indicating that the attack by Gonzalez must have been swift. Regardless, the specifics about this heinous crime are likely maintained only in the mind of the killer. Through the diligent efforts of detectives unwilling to give up on a cold case, the three women found buried in the Las Vegas desert once again have their names restored to them. And their killer has been called to answer for his crimes, resulting in him spending the remainder of his life in a California prison cell. And Although Vegas PD's initial hunch that the three murdered women were victims of sex trafficking proved to be incorrect, the case remains that amid its stark beauty, the Las Vegas desert hides a significant amount of human wreckage that stems from a city and society where certain lives are believed to be more disposable than others. To learn more about this Las Vegas true crime story and many others, visit mayheminthedesert.com and get yourself acquainted with the darker side of Sin City's history. Sin City Stories, Vegas True Crime is based on material researched and written by Megan and Anthony Smith and is adapted for podcast, edited and narrated by Jeff Walker. Sin City Stories, Vegas True Crime is a co-production of Mayhem in the Desert and Walker New Media. Copyright 2024.